and there are family visiting uh, with some, and we are thankful for your presence. And we're thankful for those who came here not knowing a soul. We thank you for your presence, and we hope that you give us an opportunity to meet you. May the Lord bless us and keep us focused on Him and His glory. In Matthew 19, the last time we studied, we read the account of the rich young ruler, but we were covering the other section before it and did not get to finish. But let's begin. Excuse me. I'm sorry about that. Forgot to put it on my head. Uh, <laughs> reminded the old mother's statement, you know, you'd forget your head if it wasn't on you. <laughs> okay, Matthew 19, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16 is where we will begin, and we'll read through verse 30. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, What good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall there be for us? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, or farms, for my sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last 
And the last, first. Each of these accounts, each of these portions of this account recorded in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark tells us this young man was running to Jesus. And he bowed before Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus spoke to him the words that we just read. Keep the commandments. He said, which ones? He begins to quote them. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Mark's account specifically says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And said, if you would be perfect, go and sell all you possess. And give to the poor. And follow me. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And the young man went away sorrowfully. He leaves sorrowfully. Jesus is no doubt broken at this. And I do not doubt that there were specific reasons Jesus told this to this specific man. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and follow me. But whatever his specific reasons for addressing this particular man, he makes a general statement in verses 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Observing this, observing this man who had much possessions turn away from him, even though he was seeking eternal life, enough to run to him and ask, what must I do to obtain it? Jesus says, truly I say to you, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want you to notice, verse 24 is a strengthening of that statement. Jesus first says it is hard. He first says it is difficult. And then, he says again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In the Babylonian Talmud, there is a statement about an elephant going through the eye of a needle. Because the elephant was the largest animal in Palestine. And the eye of a needle was one of the smallest openings. Camels didn't roam in Palestine. The largest animal, or excuse me, elephants didn't roam in Palestine. The largest animal was a camel. And so Jesus takes the largest animal, the camel, the largest animal that they would have been normally acquainted with in daily life and mentions the smallest of openings, the eye of a needle, and he says that a rich man going to heaven, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there are efforts, there have been efforts to make the camel smaller or to make the eye of the needle larger. But both of them are missing the strength of what Jesus is saying. This is a profound warning. We'll talk about the why of that 
in just a second. But the Bible tells us the disciples heard this and they are astonished. The disciples who have spent this time with Jesus do not always know the outcome of his teaching. They were surprised at his answer about divorce in Matthew 19, in verses 3 through 9. And now they are astonished at this statement. Now, if this man had been one who was mistreating those who were poor, which is constantly railed against in the Old Testament prophets, Amos 2, verses 6 through 8, for example, it's constantly railed against. The disciples would have had no trouble understanding The disciples would have readily grasped that message. But when it comes to riches in general, which sometimes can be beautiful, and they are always a blessing from God. But that doesn't mean that we have God's approval if we have them. They heard this, they were surprised, and they asked the question, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter said, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And they had. They had left everything. If you want to go back to their call and look in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, beginning with verse 18, Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Notice verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The same thing Peter says we did in Matthew 19, 27 is exactly what they did. They left everything to follow him. The same thing goes for James and John, the sons of Zebedee in verses 21 and 22. They were with their father mending their nets and when Jesus called them in verse 22 of Matthew 4, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Here are examples of the apostles who had done exactly what Peter claims they have done. We have left everything and we have followed you. And Jesus says, I say to you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall come on the throne of his glory, you shall sit on 12 tribes, the the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That promise was specifically made to the apostles. When he mentions the 12 tribes, the 12 thrones, that is specifically a promise to the apostles And I think that may be referring to how they lead us and guide us through their writings. Even this is the writing of an apostle. But verse 29 is not just a promise to the apostles. Verse 29 is a promise to all who follow Jesus. Everyone who has left father or mother or children... Or farms 
for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now that statement in verse 30, that God's kingdom often turns things upside down, is going to be repeated in Matthew 20 in verse 16. And Lord willing, we'll talk about it more there. Now it's interesting that Mark's account Mark's account words this a little differently. In verses 29 and 30 of Mark 10, Mark 10, 29 and 30, Truly I say to you that there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. He is more detailed in describing what we may leave for his sake. He says, there's no one who has done this for my sake and the gospel's sake. But in verse 30, he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. Mark specifies there are blessings in this life and there are blessings in the next. Matthew just says that you will receive this without specifying those details. Now, I want us to focus on about three things from the text. First of all, when Jesus sees the account of this young man who was a ruler, who wanted eternal life but was unwilling to give up everything to follow Jesus, it prompts Jesus to make this generic warning about riches. And why is the statement of verses 23 and 24 in the Bible? Why is it so hard for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God? Well, really, it's not something new with Jesus. For all the Bible has warned us that often our prosperity and our success can lead us to feel a lack of dependence upon God. In Deuteronomy 6, in verses 10 through 12, as the people were about to go into the promised land and they would have houses full of good things, which they did not feel, and vineyards and olive trees, which they did not plant, and they're going to eat and be satisfied, the Bible says, then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Wealth, prosperity, blessings can be a reason for us to forget our utter and absolute dependence upon Him. The same thing in Deuteronomy 8. But Deuteronomy 8 verses 17 and 18 tells us that our success may sometimes lead us to say, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who is giving you power to make wealth. Riches might blur our sense of utter dependence upon God, and riches might lead us to congratulate 
ourselves on our successes. The Bible says in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Did I not be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or that I should not be in want and steal and profane the name of God? A man told me that he went to one of the poorest countries on earth to preach the gospel. He was stunned at people's willingness to listen. If you stand up and you preach on a street corner there, people will gather. People will listen. But he said he went back in a couple of years. Some good things had happened in that country. They would still be one of the poorest countries on earth. But some good things happened. And he noticed that even the little level of wealth that those people had achieved had blurred their sense of dependence upon God. Now, if that can happen to some of the poorest countries on earth, could that happen to us? The church at Laodicea, they were Christians already. They were followers of Jesus. And Jesus said, You do not know that you are rich, you think you are wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know you're wretched, miserable, Poor and blind and naked. Do you recognize your utter dependence upon God? That we have nothing and we are nothing without Him. As we stated, the disciples were stunned at this. They're astonished. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. And this word for look is only used one other time in Matthew. It's a profound gaze. It is asking you to consider and reflect on something when it's used in Matthew 6. But here Jesus is looking at them in all seriousness. It says with people... This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I can remember one day, I don't know what had happened in this person's life this day, but staying with him, I was preaching, and as we were driving, he asked that question. Who? Who can be saved? He said, Do you ever wonder about that? Who can be saved? And Jesus said, The hope is in God and not in man. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all 
things are possible. Now, I want you to go back to something that we said last time in looking at this account. Back in verse 17 of Matthew 19, the Bible says that Jesus asked the man, the man asked, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you asking me about what is good? Now that good is placed in a different spot in Mark and Luke. In Mark and Luke, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But each of the Gospels have the young man using the word good and Jesus confronting his use of the word good. Now, I want to tell you, I'm not saying that we can never speak of a person as a good man. Because the Bible does it. It describes Barnabas, for example, that way in Acts chapter 11 and verse 24. The Bible describes him as being good, but also there is a sense in which there are none good. And from the very start, Jesus was trying to get him to think about this concept of goodness. You are familiar with the passage in Romans 3. In verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. None righteous, none are good. so many qualities that surpass us. But we have no reason to think is right with God. And we ask, how could that person be lost? How could that person not be saved. That's a saying. I've asked that question. And probably still will wrestle with it on occasion. But do you understand something? That is not a biblical question. The biblical question is how come all these good people are lost? The question that Paul answers in Romans, the question that is really dealt with throughout all Scripture is how can bad people like us be 
Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, the serpent had asked Eve, should you eat from the trees of the garden? And she said, from the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent says, you shall not surely die. But I want to focus on what Eve said. Have you ever compared Eve's words in Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, to what the Lord said to her in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17? Have you compared those words? She said, we may eat of the trees of the garden. God said, you may eat of the trees of the garden freely. Freely. She's already minimized God's generosity. She's minimized God's generosity already. And, and she said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, did God literally say you shall not touch it? If you're not to eat of it, it's a good idea not to touch it. I grant that. But God didn't say that specifically. God said, the day you eat, then you will die. She has minimized the generosity of God already, and she has heightened the harshness of God. May I suggest to you that we do the same thing in asking that question? We are the ones that sin. We're the ones who have done war. And it is God, as Luke said earlier, not verbatim, it is God who is seeking us. It is not we who are seeking Him. He is seeking us. He is seeking to bring lost people into fellowship with Him. He is seeking to save us from our sin. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It is not that so many good people are seeking God and God is seeking to hide. It is that God is seeking to find all who will humble themselves and turn to Him. God is seeking man. And I've illustrated this before by Luke 19, 10, which was referenced earlier in the talk. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was in Luke 19, verse 3. He was trying to see who Jesus was. It leads him, leads him to climb up in the tree to see Jesus. At the end of that account, after Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. The Bible tells us, Zacchaeus hurried and came down. Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Wasn't even asked to do that and, and volunteers that. Quite the contrast to the rich young ruler. Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anyone of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek 
and to save that which is lost. What I'm trying to say, when Zacchaeus said that he was trying to see Jesus in Luke 19 verse 3, it is the same Greek word that's translated seek in Luke 19 verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The account looks like Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus. But Jesus has been looking for Zacchaeus all along. He has come to seek and to save the lost. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man at Calvary. God, in His grace, provides forgiveness that we cannot ever achieve with man that is impossible but with God all things are possible and I'm going to tell you if we realize what a wonder it is that we have been forgiven we will always stand in awe of Him. His love, His mercy. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There are about five times in the Bible, and I just put a couple on the slide. The Bible says all things are possible with God. In Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. The Lord tells Abram and Sarah that he will return to them at this time next year and she will have a son. Sarah laughed. And God says, why did you laugh? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? In a similar passage... When Mary asked, how can this be? How can I be pregnant with this child? Since I am a virgin, nothing will be impossible with God. Luke 1 verse 37. And just as God does the impossible there, God does the impossible in making it possible for people like us who have sinned and violated His holiness to be saved. Nothing is impossible with God. And just as it's impossible for man to raise the dead, that is a picture often given of our salvation. Luke 15, he was dead and is alive. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. The door of salvation is open to everyone. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is and what He has done. But such privileges are perfectly consistent with Jesus telling this particular ruler to sell his possessions and give to the poor. 
and follow him. God asked much of this ruler. God asked much of the apostles. And God asked much of us. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God asked much of us. But I want to tell you something. God's promises are always greater than God's demands. God's promises are greater than God's demands. In Genesis 12, the call of Abraham is recorded. And God demands much from Abraham. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house. Leave all of these to the land I will show you. God asks much, but God promises more. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse the one who curses you. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. God's blessings are greater than God's demands. That is true of Abraham. That is true of the disciples. They were told, as we specified from Mark, that they would receive a hundred times as much in this present time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. Not quite your best life now, but... But he promises blessings in this life with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. God's promises are greater than even his demands. Peter was not raised in a Christian home. He was the number one pitcher at that time for the University of Miami. An area that is often known for its moral or immoral excesses and he said that he partook of those. He may even look, he looked to have a promising professional career. But an arm injury brought that to an end. And he's in his mid-twenties, or early to mid-twenties. And what he hoped about and dreamed about was all of a sudden gone. He didn't exactly know where to turn. 
and started to do some serious reflection about himself and about his life. He started to read the Bible. More and more he started to read the Bible and more and more became convinced of the power of his word. His parents had never carried him to services or done anything like that with him, but they did have a certain respect for Scripture. And he only found that strengthened many times over by, by reading the Scripture. And after he started reading it, he would start attending various churches. He didn't know what to do or where to go or anything. And he would go into the service and, and he would look and say, that doesn't sound like what I'm reading in Scripture. And, and then go to another place and say the same thing. And he called up a man. And it was an old man cleaning the building that Saturday afternoon who just happened to be there. And he answers the phone at the building and he asks when they met. And the man tells him when they met. And he said, you know, I, said, I don't know if I should come. I'm not, I'm not feeling like a lot of churches are offering what I think the Bible says. He told him what he thought. That should look like. And the person who answered the phone said, just come and see. Come and see what you think. He came. He said, this seems closer to what I read in the Bible. He kept studying. He knew the importance of baptism. He'd seen it in Scripture. And after listening to the brethren a few weeks, he was baptized for mission of sin. But they really didn't know anything about him. You know, here's this visitor who's coming in, and he doesn't know anyone else, and he's just listening for a couple of weeks, and here he's baptized. So the preacher and one of the members show up at his house that Monday to, to visit him and talk with him, and they show up at his house. And uh, they come in to a big room like this one and he said, is there anywhere to sit? There's no place to sit. They ask him, is he just moving in? And he said, no. And he explained to them, that he had read the account of the rich young ruler and he had sold what he had and gave everything away. He is still preaching today. And because of that, he has been to places he would have never been. And met people he would have never met. And had brothers and sisters 
that he would have never known. In other words, he's received a hundred times in this life. And the greatest blessing that are promised Christians are not in this life, but in the next. And in the world to come, eternal life. You have people in the New Testament who gave up everything to obtain eternal life. And you have people around the world today that are literally threatened for their faith in Jesus. But do not let our prosperity and our ease lead us to think that this is the life here. This is the reward. This is all we're looking for. No. Let's not lose our focus on the end and eternity. And that the greatest blessings are beyond this life. The rich young ruler came questioning about eternal life. Verse 29 ends with the promise of eternal life. That is a promise that can sustain us in the midst of life. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the love that you show, for the mercy that reveal, you reveal. We thank you for the death of Christ and the resurrection that makes the impossible possible. That makes it possible for people like us to be saved. Thank you, God, for your grace, for your mercy, for your compassion in Jesus. Thank you. Lord, you bless us here beyond anything we expect, beyond anything we deserve. But may our blessings here not dull our senses to our need of you and our dependence upon you. May we be people who set our hope on you and on life eternal. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Who then can be saved? With people it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If you recognize your sin, and you recognize your guilt before God, and you're overwhelmed with that question, who then can be saved? There is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. If you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sins and turn to Him, and are baptized remission of sins, you can be forgiven and washed of every stain. And we invite you to come as we sing and sing.
Mm. I heard an old 